My name is Tom McNabb and this is the first of a series of coaching interviews in which we try to use the experience of the coach to gain understanding of what athletics is all about and how not only the, the lives of athletes and young people can be enriched, but the life of the coach is enriched by this relationship. Because at the centre of everything is the fact that the main aim is to beat the man or the woman that you were yesterday. And if you keep doing that, you're champion. And if you build that culture into the sport, then you get something of real value. Seems like you've loved every minute of your oh, coaching right. career. Every minute. Oh, no, I, I haven't had a, a bad moment in coaching in my life. Never. The main influence to me was a man called William Wilson, who was about 150-odd years of age, who featured in the pages of a comic paper called The Wizard, came out once every week on a Tuesday. Wilson was a colossal all-round athlete. He broke the four-minute mile well before Roger Bannister. In fact, Roger was very troubled when I told him <laughs> that Wilson had done it in 1820. He could jump in a well over seven feet in a high jump, carrying a 16-pound shot for balance. But remember, boys in those days, boys did a vast amount of street play. We played endless games of football and cricket and hockey. We made our own high jump stands. We even pole vaulted in my mother's clothes pole. So we did a, a vast amount of physical activity, which kids don't do nowadays. I joined uh, the local athletic club, Sheriffs and Harriers, and in those days, remember, they didn't have large numbers of children. Harriers clubs were for people above the age of 16 or 17. The reason I got into the team was because they didn't have enough people, because I was absolutely useless. I wasn't built for cross-country running. And um, it was in those days seven runners with five to count. And we only had about seven boys. And I was always seventh. <laughs> I mean, I was consistent in that regard. I was a late developer. And this is one of the big problems in, in, in sport in schools. People who get the most out of it are the early developers. The ones who go to the school sports are winning things right away. And I wasn't. I, didn't, I hadn't won anything in the school sports at all until I was 17. But when I was 17, my teacher, Mr. Johnson, came to me one day. I think it was on... Um, it was in uh, about May of 1951, and said, Tom, why would you like to compete in the, in the Scottish Schools Championships? I was incredibly flattered, I mean, that's me, because uh, he knew I was nutty about athletics. Well, I'll do the 100 yards, I'll do the long jump, I'll do the high jump. I've never done this in the hop, step and jump. I'll try that, I'll try that as well. It was called the hop, step and jump in those days. So off we went to Edinburgh. I was last in 100 yards. I didn't qualify in the long jump. I didn't qualify in the high jump, but it came to the triple jump. I thought, well, yeah, I'll use my long jump run up and it's hop on to my right, step on to my left, into the pit. Hop, step, and got it. First jump, new Scottish record. Extraordinary. School's record, I mean, no. yeah. By the end of the competition, I finished second. By the end of the year, I was lying fourth in Britain in the under 20s. Now, this is what I call a sliding doors phenomenon in the sense that if my, Mr. Johnson hadn't asked me, I wouldn't have got there. Would I ever have triple jumped? I don't know. We didn't do it at school. So that, that was the, the entree to me to competitive athletics. Uh, I then went on to win Scottish uh, senior titles. You know, I think I won five Scottish senior titles after that in the, period, the next 10 years or so. 
But the big problem, of course, in those days was there was no coaching at yeah. all. It wasn't a matter of bad coaching. There was none. And so I had to become my own coach. And in some ways, that was a good thing because it taught me to try and work out what was important in an event and do it. So just elaborate on what you mean by, by no coaching and, and why. It's just those processes hadn't been formally established to create coaching programs and coaching education. That's right. Coaching arrived really in a, any, any realistic form in 1947 in England when Geoffrey Dyson was appointed as national coach, director of coaching. And his job was to create a body of voluntary coaches because there were none. There was occasional ex-professional runners who were trainers or masseurs, but there were no coaches to it in any practical sense at all. One was appointed in Scotland, a man called Tony Chapman, who was a captain in the army. But the, the thing that characterised all of them, I found later, was that none of them had done much coaching because they spent most of their lives, or their previous lives, in the army during the war. They didn't have a chance to do it. And they were learning on the job. And Dyson, a very intelligent guy, said, right, 30% of the time we work for you must be in coaching. As you mentioned, Jeff Dyson, just elaborate a little bit more on his background. I know he's someone that you interviewed yeah. in order to capture some of his wisdom. Yeah. Well, Dyson actually was a foundling. Um, he was found out. He didn't know who his mother and father were. And he became a, a sort of a boy soldier in the army, I think, when he was 15 or 16. And he was taken out of the army by F.A.M. Webster. Now, F.A.M. Webster had been the sort of father of British coaching since about 1908 and had formed the, uh, the Loughborough School of Sports and Games. And he brought Dyson into the staff. By that time, Dyson was a huddler. And with the amateur rules at the time, unfortunately, the moment he was a member of staff, he couldn't compete in any amateur athletics. So from the moment he entered the sport, he was, he was rejected by it. It might tell you something about the nature of what was happening then, that he was not appointed as coach of the British 1948 Olympic team. There was no coaching allowed even in the Olympic Village. And it tells you what sort of setup Dyson was working in. So what was it about you personally that made you decide, I want to become a coach, I want to make new ground here? Well, I'd, I'd already become one by coaching myself to some <laughs> extent. But, what, but also, there was a natural instinct to become one. I joined the club committee, and, I, and one day I was standing at our track in Barachne, in the outskirts of Glasgow, with the secretary, Davy Ferguson. And, I, and Davy said, well, we've got no pole vaulters, Tom. And I said, well, we don't have any pole vaulters because we don't have any poles, and we don't have any stands. We don't have anything which would enable people to vault, Davy. Oh, he said, aye, aye. So a couple of weeks later, he's standing beside me again. He says, it's coming next week. All your pole vault kit, it's all coming. And that was expensive. And, you know, for our club, we didn't have much money. I arrived a couple of weeks later. And then two weeks after that, he says, well, where are they? I said, where are who? The vaulters. As if they would spring up out of the <laughs> earth. <laughs> I looked across the track, and there was a big skinny boy, about 15 years of age, running up and down the track. In fact, about 100 metres away from me. He said, no him, Tommy. No him, no. No, he's Norrie Foster. Norrie's, Norrie's the best half-miler in his age group in the country. I'm over here, Norrie, I said. And so I, I, I remember from the books I'd read, F.A.M. Webster's books, the way to start pole vaulting, you shove the pole in the box, the guy runs in, and off oh, five or seven strides, and you swing him over into the pit. And then you put a bar up, and so on, you go from there. 
So I had a few swings and got Norrie over about two metres, swinging him over the bar, lugging him over the bar. And Norrie said, that's great, Tom. Can we do that next week? When he was to... I said, well, yes, when I, when I finish training, we'll do it again. Well, that year, Norrie won the Scottish title, school's title. Two years later, it was British Junior Champion. Four years after that, British Decathlon Champion. Sliding doors. Extraordinary, yeah. It just makes you think how many moments there are like that. It's the moments that haven't happened that are the problem. <laughs> well, the door hasn't slid really. Yeah, well, that's interesting because it, it talks about new situations where you're given the, the choice, you're given the opportunity. You've had so many exciting opportunities over the years, but you've been put in new situations and new sports as well, asked to coach bobsleigh and rugby. Just tell me about adapting to those and what it's like to be a leader in those situations. Well, the bobsleigh was a relatively easy one. It occurred in 1979. They, they invited me to the Bobsleigh Association because they were about 21st in the world in, in starting speeds. And a tenth gained at the top over the first 30, 40 metres. It's worth about three or four tenths at the bottom. So, in fact, we'd got some fairly good drivers, but they, they were limited by the fact that the, the starting times were so slow. And they were all army guys. Nobody trained. And I uh, brought into the sport a man called John Howell, John was a Stoke lad, one of my decathletes, my national decathlon squad. He was unemployed, and I managed to get him a few, a few pounds, and turned out to be the most powerful brake man, that's at the back of the sled, in the world. Not just the best that we had, he was better than the Swiss or the Germans or anybody. So that was another sliding door for John. At the point when he started bobsleigh, though, he had virtually no knowledge of, of what he was doing. Is that None fair to say? No, 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 I would say that. It was an, an evolving sport, and it was a very low evolutional point. And then rugby, of course, you got the call ahead of the Rugby World Cup 1987. Take yeah. me back to that time. I was chairman of the British Association of National Coaches, two or three times chairman. And so I knew a lot of people in rugby, and I'd, still, I'd played rugby. I, I played rugby until I was uh, 66, uh, but I always played at a low level. So Don Rutherford, who was the head of coaching in, in, in rugby, Don asked me if I'd help them to improve the fitness levels for the first World Cup. Mm. And a lovely bunch of guys when I met them. They'd operated off their natural talent. And so I spent four years trying to get them to do even a, a modest amount of training. That seems surprising. No, it really does. No, very, very odd. So you're inspired by a number of things. Sliding doors moments, important. But also literature has been important to you. You've compiled, I think, bibliographies mm. of, of books and athletics. What's inspired you about the books that you've read? Not a great deal. I mean, I'm just, I'm very interested in the history of the sport, where it's all come from. Um, but I've always been a, a sort of nutcase for all sorts of obscure details about athletics. There are definitely books that you can read. That's one important part of furthering your knowledge, knowing what else is around. Because the question I'm asking is, what does a good coach education system look like? Yeah, well, a good coach education system must be based on practical experience. And, and it's interesting that Dyson said to me, he said, look, Tom, when I, I go and lecture abroad, you fi I find people who know more about the theory of the sport than I do. But when I ask them, what do they actually do? They tell me they don't coach. Uh, so basically, they've got a body of theory that is of no great value to them at all, because pure theory is no value to you at all. And that's the big danger. If you get lost in theory, and you end up with a clutter of sort of quasi-scientific ideas, 
It's not easy to put in words what you do in coaching. Mm. It's much easier to do biomechanical and physiological material, which is you know more abstract. Mm. It's not easy to put put it in words. But word of mouth is important. Right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the big thing really is coaches talking to each other and uh, you know communing with each other and talking about the what things that they're trying to do. Uh, for instance, I mean, I was working out with a, uh, a friend of mine, F.A. Weifel, who's a triple jumper, long jumper. Uh, he's got uh, a beat board that we work off. It's not a springboard, it's a beat board. Now, that was built by, by Greg Rutherford. He actually built it because Greg was a great carpenter, terrific carpenter. I only came upon that by accident because I, I used it for children. That gives kids something they can, they can hit and jump in the air and it's easy for them to come. They're not worried about an eight-inch board. I'd never used it with international athletes, but I discovered that with Greg, who wasn't a, he wasn't a fit guy, this worked. There was a high correlation between jumping off that board off nine strides or ten strides and an actual distance. And in fact, in the period I had with him over two years, he must have done 2,000 jumps off that board, never jumped off the ground at all, and yet led the world as a junior. That was pure trial and error. I didn't know that was going to happen. Coaches often tend to follow a very narrow formula that they're told should work, like a menu of some sort. That's a danger. So that's interesting. Creative thinking clearly throughout your career has been vital. Just tell me a little bit more about why. The biggest problem in, uh, in coaching is always the question of what is the priority at any one time. And it's mm. the ability of coaches to, to get the priorities done Get them at the bedrock of what you're doing, and then you go from there to the next priority, and so on. And uh, I think we've often got lost in a myriad of drills and little practices. You know, I mean, I was watching a, a, a very good discus coach working with a big, strong guy, and he's walking over two hurdles, and the hurdles are about, about six inches off the ground, and he's walking over these two or three hurdles. And I said, "Why are you doing that?" And he was quite affronted. No possible, but I can do that. Anything I can do is useless to a thrower. That if I can do it, I'm, I'm 88 years of age for God's sake. And yet he'd been shown on some course somewhere, and that was what you had to do. Talking about bedrock there and foundations, one important foundation early in an athlete's career is doing so many events. You, of course, helped create the the National Junior Decathlon Programme. Right. Just tell me about why that was such an important focus at the time. I, uh, when I arrived in England, I'd already got the Scots to hold the decathlon for the first time. We had never had a decathlon in Scotland, ever. The event had been going since 1912, but we had never had one. Had you had something similar? No, nothing. So I got onto the Scottish three years, and luckily there were friends of mine there. And I said, why don't we have a decathlon? And he said, well, we, 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 the committee don't think it's a good idea, Tom. I said, why not? Said, ah, it'll take some away from field events. I said, well, a year later, they, they took me up on it and they held one, and so I competed in it. And uh, that was the very first decathlon ever held in Scotland. So when I came down to England, I said to Arthur Kendall, who was the, the Southern County Secretary, first class man, very meek, but he would do anything he had to do to improve the, what you gave athletes. And I said, why don't we have a program for 16, 17, 18-year-olds, under-20s, boys, and start them as decathletes when they're in their mid-teens? So we got started at Wellingham City in 1964, 
two-day courses and some excellent coaches I had with me. The April of the next year, I said, OK, why don't we have a, a junior decathlon competition? But a competition over senior heights hurdles and senior throwing implements. And he said, why senior ones? I said, because if you make them senior, then they go on to the national rankings. It was a gale blowing at Welling Garden City. And it must have been about 100 miles an hour. So the first time was 10.6. People were beating the, the times by about a second. And it went on for the next two days. Every time we'd, we moved, the wind seemed to be behind them. We had two guys at 6,000 points. Within, within a few years, we were having regional decathlons, national junior decathlon, decathlons against Holland and France and Belgium. Now, it all came from Kendall getting that going. A coach can have a strong developmental element in it. Without the opportunities, there's no point in coaching. I started the courses probably in late 63, and we were into 64 for the competition. That would be April 64. And then that was the same time when I introduced the Five Star Award for children in schools. Again, Kendall was central to it. And within a few years, we were pumping out two million certificates and half a million badges. We looked at them after five years, 10,000 certificates, to see what events were being done. Two track and one field, two field and one track, and found there wasn't a single javelin, there wasn't a single huddles, there wasn't a single pole vault, there wasn't a single hammer in 10,000 certificates. What we do then is said, OK, make the, let's have a decathlon and a pentathlon for the girls, a decathlon and a pentathlon within the five-star award. From that group, I was able to start in the beginning of the 1970s Courses at Crystal Palace were the best in the country. But most of these people had never tried a decathlon. But it wasn't a normal decathlon, two days or pentathlon. They could spend two or three weeks getting these results. But it doesn't matter. And who turns up in 74? Guy who had never done nine of the events. And two years later, it was the British Olympic team, Dilly Thompson. But again, sliding doors. On the course was Bruce Longdon, one of my coaches, took him to live with him for a year and taught him the basic base of every event. Two years from zero to the Olympics, providing opportunity. You've got to look at the whole package in athletics, not just coaching, because if the competitive setup isn't good enough, then the coaching doesn't find a place to live. A mm, place to thrive. A place to thrive. But you had a guy like Alan Bertram who died a few years ago, the hammer coach. Now, Alan would hold courses in which you compete in the morning, six throws, and now six throws in the afternoon. And they might have talks in between between the coaches about hammer throwing. He established a little hub of hammer throwing within about a year. Now, if you get guys like that, you've got a, a source of growth in an event. So it's not just a matter of finding people who are technically good at coaching it. It's useful to people who have got the energy to go beyond that. Great football coaches get the most attention, don't they, as characters yeah. of, of Sir Alex Ferguson and, and Jurgen Klopp. And it's interesting to think that maybe we don't give athletics coaches as much of a persona or, or gravitas and respect through the character that they are. How would you characterise a great coach? Well, I mean, it's difficult because there's no one model for it. Mm. But the, the great coach is interested in you as a person. They're really great coaches. They're interesting as a person, not just as an athlete. They have the ability to isolate that which is important at any one time, not just technically, but in terms of conditioning of what you're doing. The ability to prioritize the must, could, should phenomenon. You must do this. 
Sounds like the highway code. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like it. So much of it's on the phone or you're having a cup of coffee with them or having a chat. It's not the formal business of being in a track always. It travels beyond that. Yeah. So we're talking a lot here about personal connection, coach to athlete, but also kind of results, something tangible that you can see going from zero to hero. Oh, that's right. I mean, the big thing about athletics, I mean, I always say the athlete competes against the man he was yesterday. That's a great thing that we've got because it's difficult to measure how good you are at football Mm. because there's no no absolute objective measure. But we've got time out and distance. And yet I see programs, children's programs in athletics, oh, there's no sign of a tape. Part of it is we have become obsessed with time, height and distance to the point where every performance is documented and if there's a bad performance, it's there on record ah, and, yeah, and but, it, but, it's not, but that's not the point. Mm. The point is to compare the person with himself and what he did before. Yeah. That's all it really counts. I mean, I have competitions with kids who are just having a long jump and we've, everyone does it in one, two, three, four, five, six. Okay, now, the next competition, you only get one jump uh-huh. and the person who gets the biggest improvement wins some little girl who's the only only jump one meter twenty. She gets up to one forty five. She's she's won it. She gets a certificate, most improved athlete of the day, signed by Mister McNabb. As long as he feels valued for what he's done, or she, particularly important with children because they're growing up and they're not sure about themselves. I even have warm up competitions. So okay, we got high knee pickups ten. Okay, over ten meters. Bottom kicking ten over ten meters. Skipping 10 over 10 metres, okay. Now, Jane, you're in charge of this group of four. You've got five minutes to produce synchro warm-up. And I'll give you marks out of 100. And I usually give the, t- the task to a wee girl who's not very, t- he's a bit timid, is cringing a bit. And she then, it's amazing, they suddenly become leaders. You are coach of the day, Jane, that sort mm. of thing. But also, what you've touched on there is giving young athletes coaching skills that they might later and does blossom and that's really important because we see that again all the time in other sports where yeah let's say a great generation of, of Manchester United players a lot of them come out and become coaches because they've been part of an important connection or which they value themselves that's yeah. right I mean, some people transfer into that well others don't but nevertheless that's right but even during the actual experience itself if you've got one child helping one wee boy helping a, a, a wee girl saying to her you must have have said look you landed with your heels out of line try and land with your heels in line Jane that's part of the spectrum of human relationships yet one child's helping another one of the things that I think that we tend to forget about in, in um, coaching is posh term cultural architects once you develop a culture with a group some people cotton on to it and actually help you because they become examples for their colleagues. So when I was coaching at Crystal Palace, um, I had a guy called Peter Gabbett who had come to me at 26 to become a decathlete. 26, he was in the Navy. About 10.9, 51 seconds for the four. Hadn't done the other events. Within six years, he was at the Olympics. And he'd brought 8,000 points. And he'd run 46 or 7 in the 400 metres in 72 Olympics. Great example, Peter, to all the other people in my squad. You know, he was a positive example. The athletes infect each other. Desires and discipline. So tell me about your experience at the Olympic Games. We've talked about athletes rising through school ranks and, and breaking records. 
What does it mean to be coaching someone at the Olympics? How do you give someone the confidence in that kind of scenario, which very exciting, but could be draining in some sense mentally because of the buzz that's involved? Well, that's a tricky one because, uh, and the best thing for that is that they should be going through that process as juniors as well, so that they get used to the different environment that an Olympics offers relative to what they have at a national championships. And so the more you can get people into European under under 20 championships, European under 23 championships and so on, then they become conditioned to operating in these circumstances. And that's one of these things you can't have a prescription for. What's the most challenging situation you've faced as a, a coach? Well, the challenge, well, that's a tough one. That, that, it, that is a tough one. Well, I, I've never faced a tough situation. I've I faced a tough environment at the 1972 Olympics in Munich. Um, my guy was in the top three, Peter Gabbett was in the top three of the decathlon the first day. And in the second day, the, the masseur, Ted Chappell, was a lovely guy. And I always remember that. And I thought, well, there's a chance of a medal here, for Christ's sake. So Peter went off into the, to the huddles. And uh, I said, uh, what do you think? Ted said, no, he's got no chance to. What do you mean? He just ran 46, dead. 46 or 7, fastest ever run in the decathlon. <laughs> His hamstring was gone. I thought, how do you know? This guy had a tremendous touch. He obviously knew. There was no way I was going to tell him that. But my heart dropped. But I mean, I thought, I hope he's wrong. <laughs> I hope he's wrong. <laughs> but he wasn't wrong. And Peter managed to get through the huddles. I don't know how he did that. And he managed to get through the next day in discus all right, yeah. And it came to the pole vault. He couldn't run. He was gone. Oh, that's decathlon for you. I always say decathlete is a series of injuries held together by ligaments and a desire for points. What would you like your legacy from your coaching career to be? I'm interested particularly in the teaching of athletics to children, uh, mm. you know, to kids who have never done it. In the main, it's a school sport. Most people uh, associate athletics with failure. Failure on sports day. Well, that's right, on sports day. And I'm, I, I go to Lee Valley and I watch the end product because that's all you have to do. Look at the end product. The, the marvellous facility there and you have a school sports there. Terrific. You're watching kids in a long jump who clearly don't know what to jump, foot to jump off. No one's told them. I'd like to have left a legacy which would help people to teach children, A, in group situations in clubs, and B, in curricular time in schools. It's not a diluted form of coaching. So we're going to do some interviews. You're going to conduct these interviews. Yeah. What do you think needs to be harnessed for, let's say, up-and-coming coaches today and for the future? Well, most of our population, 35,000 kids, are in that 9, 10, 11, 12, 13 what I call the pre-competitive period. Yeah. We've got to find a model of te- how to teach groups which will enable them to leave, even if they don't stay in this world, they leave with a time, height and distance. They know how to, they themselves could run a long jump competition. I'm not saying they've done it very well, but they, they can time. They've got a basic technique, like a five-stride approach, scissors and a high jump. That They've got an understanding that effort will always be rewarded, no matter how poor you are at something, as long as you give it your best shot, you're going to be recognised not only by your teacher, but by your friends. Build all that into it. You've got a very rich experience, but most of them are not going to be athletes. You're in a, a lift, which usually gets off of the first floor. Very few people reach the top floor and stay in the sport. 
We know the numbers, tell us that. So I would say the big thing that I'd want to do, my last contribution to athletics would be get the teaching side, the, the athletic education, if you like, of children, properly based. If you look at the actual, the way that parents take their children round sport, they'll take them around football, you know, tennis, athletics, all sorts of sports. So um, all you can do is make what you offer as vivid and exciting and challenging as you can, and you'll get more people staying in it because it's something they want to stay in. What time in your career do you like to reminisce about the most? I enjoyed pretty much every minute I had with all the athletes I worked with. And any one of them could step through the door now and they'll be welcome here. Some still do. Kettle's always running. Yeah, that's always there. I mean, I want to get enjoyment out of it. I'm not interested in, I'm not interested in someone saying I'm a marvellous coach. I'm interested in the, the experience and seeing people change and develop. It gives me as much pleasure now as it did when, with Naughty Foster. I'm still in touch with Naughty Foster, the pole vaulter from 60 years ago. When I go to Scotland, Norrie will be out with me, he and his wife. And that's the real riches you get from the sport. The real richness is in the experiences you have with athletes. And it stays with you.